Welcome, everyone. My name is James Leibold. I'm a professor of politics and Asian studies at La Trobe University, and I'll be the chair and moderator for this evening's hybrid public event. I want to begin by paying my respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, uh, on wh whose unceded land we meet this evening. I want to pay my respect to their uh, Indigenous elders, past, present and emerging, and uh, extend that respect to other Indigenous people here with us today. Uh, let me uh, begin by welcoming our panelists. We've got two here. One's coming, uh, I'm told. Uh, first, we've got um, Jackie Troy, who's the Director of Indigenous Research at the University of Sydney. And her research focuses on documenting, describing, and reviving Indigenous languages, both uh, in Australia. She's a member of the Neragu uh, mob, and uh, now doing uh, research, field research in SWAT in Pakistan um, that um, I'm sure she'll talk about. Um, next, I might introduce Dolly. She's not here yet, but um, Dolly Kikon is an anthropologist and a senior lecturer in development studies. Uh, at the University of Melbourne. Uh, she's formerly a lawyer uh, with the Supreme Court in India, where she advocated on behalf of indigenous rights of her uh, Naga people in uh, northern India. And finally, to my left, my colleague uh, and friend Gerald Roach, who's a senior research fellow at La Trobe University. Uh, I would like to thank the world's leading expert on language endangerment and re revitalization in China, and also the lead author of this uh, La Trobe Asia policy brief, Indigenous Language Rights and the Politics of Fear in Asia, the, which we are gathering today to launch. So. Uh, perhaps I will somehow launch it uh, <laughs> before you uh, and congratulate uh, Gerald and its authors on um, a fantastic and really important publication, but as we were uh, noting before, also a rather depressing read. So the format uh, tonight, we've got an hour. Uh, I'm going to ask our panelists um, a series of questions uh, for around 40 minutes or so. And then uh, I'll turn to questions from both the audience members here in the room, as well as those in the in the Zoom room. Uh, for those online, um, please remember to send your uh, questions via the Q&A function rather than the chat, uh, but feel more than free to use the chat function if, the, if you wish to. Uh, but let me let me begin um, uh, really with you, Jackie. Uh, we, we caught up on Friday and you were telling me about your recent field research uh, to Pakistan. I mean, you've got a long history of uh, advocating for uh, Indigenous language rights. Um, I'm wondering if you could just reflect on your experience both um, here in Australia as well as in India and uh, tell us about what you think, what the role of human rights is in uh, efforts to uh, preserve and revive Indigenous languages. Well, I guess I'd start from why I went into the field of, um, I guess, anthropological linguistics uh, is technically my field, uh, was because I thought you can't really be an anthropologist and understand people if you can't communicate with them. And I began with an experience in my own life of being in Mexico. My mother went there to study in the 70s when I was a teenager. And I had that experience you have as a teenager of um, the world does not revolve around me. There's actually quite a lot out there beyond my own ego. And um, I think it's very easy coming from a place like Australia, whether you're Aboriginal or not, to feel very cosseted and 
um, in many ways safe, although as an Aboriginal person, you're never really quite as safe as other people are. Um, I hadn't actually even realised how my own rights and those of my community and other Aboriginal communities had been so severely infringed, I think, until I went and lived in Mexico. And um, I encountered the colonisation of, of the Spanish language in Mexico. And uh, I was living in a place where there were Chichimeca people and people still spoke their language and, and talked about never having been conquered by the Spanish conquistadors. But of course, they were the people who were the domestic servants in people's houses. They were, they lived in the barrios, as we called them, in the poorest areas of the town I lived in, which was a very wealthy town, San Miguel de Allende, central Mexico. Um, and it got me thinking um, as I headed towards my own university studies about what I wanted to do myself. And I felt this, well, what happened to our languages, our Aboriginal languages? Uh, my people are from the Snowy Mountains in southeastern Australia. We are Nariku. And uh, we were only ever a very small group of people um, moving around in groups of about 40 in a clan group, a family-based clan group, um, maybe 2,000 people in total, not a huge number. Um, and we were overwhelmed um, actually by disease. Measles hit our country probably before any of the non-Indigenous people who invaded our area. Um, but when they did invade, they brought so much with them in the way of livestock. And there were hundreds of thousands of sheep, cattle and horses up in the high country when there was still only a very small number of people, non-Indigenous people. But what they also brought with them was this attitude that, well, we were going to disappear, we, the Aboriginal people, um, and by the time people were coming into our country, people were already commenting that in the 18 sort of 20s and 30s that Aboriginal people were dying out. You know, there weren't as many. There's a man, um, John Lotsky, who came through my country and wrote about going from Sydney down to the mountains and how he hardly saw any Aboriginal people and he expected to see a lot. Um, so there's this attitude that we were sort of disappearing, dying out, and um, that that was sort of convenient, if a bit sad, but, you know, really the settlers needed settlers. Like, don't you love that word? The invaders needed that land for all this livestock that they were bringing in, which was much more profitable than being grazed by a bunch of Aboriginal people, you know. So, um, and unfortunately, this is the pattern I've seen repeated all over the world. Uh, I've just, as you said, been in northwest Pakistan where the people I work with in um, that area are Dawalis of a place called Sawat, and they are a small tribal group by comparison with the other groups around them. They're about 150,000 people maybe, uh, which is a, a biggish group in that area. There are much smaller groups, language groups, but they are so put upon by the, well, the Pashtun, the Yusafzai Pashtun invaded that area several hundred years ago. And, of course, the British had a really good go at invading, but they were repelled by the people in that region, mainly by the Pashtun, but also by these tribal people who were further up in the mountains. Um, and, but they, you know, the these other older groups that are, have been in this sort of Himalayan region for maybe 30,000 years or more, 
I was just in Chitral a bit further north and apparently the history, the archaeology there suggests at least 30,000 years of occupation. Um, and these are these Dardic groups as they're known. Um, and, you know, their languages are described by other neighbouring bigger groups like the Pashtun as sounding like rocks rattling in a can. Like why would you bother to support a language that sounds like rocks rattling in a can and that these people are not very useful, they're kind of annoying. Um, it'd be better if they just assimilated into the groups around, the bigger group around them, get with the program. And, of course, the nation state of Pakistan, like the nation state of Australia, Australia is now paying a bit more lip service to us and our languages, but it's still lip service. You know, you can study an Aboriginal language in a school if I wrote the Australian Curriculum for Languages, this framework for teaching Aboriginal languages and Torres Strait Islander languages, and that means you can teach one of our languages in any of our schools in Australia, but how many actually do it? There are some that are really giving it their best shot, but they get very little government support. And in Pakistan, the same thing. You've got the local smaller tribal languages are not supported. The bigger languages are that are Indigenous languages, but again, lightly supported. Really what the nation state wants, like the nation state here, is for everybody to speak English, number one, because that gives you access to world domination. And... Um, in Pakistan, of course, Urdu, which is um, another national language and not really anybody in particular's language. So the biggest problem we face is this, is, is this idea of, I guess I call it extreme marginalisation and devaluing. And um, what I see as one of the biggest threats is that women, mothers bringing up their children are fearful for their children's future. So they encourage their children to focus on these other bigger languages. And it's only a few very brave families who say, look, first our own languages and then the languages of the state, um, which, you know, are important as well. So I guess for me it's kind of horrifyingly the same story all around the world that Indigenous languages are just not, um, they're not valued by nation states, and most of the world now is occupied by nation states. Good point. I might, um, our, our third panellist, uh, Dolly, is uh, here. I might just uh, invite her up to the front uh, when she has a moment, uh, uh, and I'll, I'll let her settle in and, and turn to you, Gerald. Um, in the, the policy brief, uh, you point out that, uh, I think it's beginning this year, or is it beginning next year, is the UN International Decade of Indigenous Languages, uh, which should be a uh, cause for optimism or hope at least. Uh, but uh, you and your co-authors uh, write about this politics of fear that's come to kind of dominate uh, Indigenous rights in Asia. I wonder what you mean by that, the politics of fear, and how is it articulated in these three countries that you guys looked at? Yeah, sure. Thanks, James. Um, so I started thinking about these issues uh, back in 2019 when the United Nations uh, held the International Year of Indigenous Languages, and that's where the idea for the international decade came from. And because I um, do my research with Tibetan communities in China, I was watching the International Year of Indigenous Languages closely in China to see what happened. And what happened was nothing. There were 
there was almost no events organized within China. There was uh, three across the entire year. Um, and one of those was organized by the Philippines and the, and the other two were sort of uh, minor local university academic conferences. There were no community events. There were no indigenous led events. Um, and so, you know, I started drawing on my experience living in China, my experience working with Tibetan communities to think about why that why that might be. And a large part of it is simply that the, the political freedoms that would enable people to participate uh, in, an, in an initiative like that don't exist in China, right? Um, so at the time of the International Year of Indigenous Languages, uh, China was experiencing one of the severest crackdowns on human rights since the Tiananmen era. And um, so started thinking about this in the lead up to um, the International Decade of Indigenous Languages and thinking about how 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 similar things might play out in other parts of the world, given that we seem to have this um, sweeping political trend around the world of, you know, rising xenophobic nationalism everywhere, uh, crackdown on international NGOs, uh, pushbacks against human rights defenders. It seems to be a global trend at the moment. Uh, so the, those, those global trends present challenges for this international decade of Indigenous languages because the United Nations in their approach, they, you know, they've adopted two central facets of their planning, both of which are like are commendable, but are also going to present challenges. So one is the idea that Indigenous people should be the main participants of the decade, right, which absolutely makes sense. These languages can't be protected and promoted without the participation of Indigenous people. And the second thing that the UN is advocating for in, in their planning and in their documents and in their strategies for this decade is a human rights approach. And that's, again, that's absolutely crucial. You can't protect and promote Indigenous languages without ensuring fundamental human rights, things like uh, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of association, all of those fundamental rights are absolutely essential to Indigenous people uh, being able to push back against the nation state. That's a assimilatory project. Um, and so I, the, the politics of fear that you asked about, politics of fear is a situation that's created um, when states, India, China, Indonesia, these are the countries that we focus on in this policy brief. All of them are restricting space for civil society. All of them are cracking down on human rights defenders. Um, it's created a very bad environment for Indigenous people to engage in human rights activism, to push back against the nation state, to push back against those assimilatory programs. And there's... Um, I mean, lots of disturbing trends and lots of worrying statistics, but I'll just highlight one number which really stood out for me in looking at these. Um, so we looked through a, a bunch of different reports, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, Frontline Defenders, Civicus Monitor, Article 19, looked at their reports from the last three years. One number really stood out. 26% of all the human rights defenders who were killed in 2021 were Indigenous people, when globally Indigenous people make up 6% of the population. The United Nations, when they're asking Indigenous people to engage in human rights activism to defend their languages, is essentially 
putting them at at risk. And this is the politics of fear. No one, no one wants to stand up and put themselves in the firing line of repressive states. Um, and so I think that that, that that politics of fear is going to suppress the groundswell of activism that we need to see in all of these countries. In, um, in countries where we see this really kind of growing authoritarian state that has uh, far more capabilities than it used to have in the past. Um, Dolly, I might bring you in uh, to the conversation now. Um, so as an anthropologist, uh, you spent many years uh, working um, to promote um, uh, language rights, uh, human rights, and uh, injustice in your community in Nagaland. Um, and part of that time is spent uh, working in the law. And I wonder your reflections on recent changes in the Indian legal system and to what effect it's having on human rights defenders and efforts to uh, to create resilience in indigenous communities in Nagaland and elsewhere in India. Um, thank you so much for having me and uh, congratulations on the October Asia brief. And I'm very honored to be here, I think, with this panel. Um, so for, for us, I think as you know, the, the Naga people, we speak more than, we are more than like 40 communities. Um, we call tribes, but the Naga nation comprises of more than 40 communities across the northeastern part of India and also the northwestern part of Myanmar. Um, and when you asked me about, I think, the history of human rights, English language has played a very important and central role because whether it's the Universal Declaration of Human Rights or looking at activism and advocacy in Geneva and elsewhere across the United Nations panels, I think English has helped us in a way to connect with a global community. Um, at the, I think, level of the grassroots, one of the changes that we have increasingly seen is uh, one in the, in the realm of, I think, the environmental rights movement connected to forest rights and forest dwellers. I would like to be specific that at least for the state of Nagaland, the Naga people in the northeastern part of India inhabit four different states, hill states, Assam, Nagaland, Arundachal Pradesh, um, and Manipur. So Nagaland is just one of the hill states there, just territorial in terms of uh, autonomy there. So um, given that within the state of Nagaland, there is a different special provision within the constitution of India. It's known as Article 371A, where we have autonomy, uh, we have custodianship over our resources, and that has played a huge role for us to actually keep away uh, mining companies and as well as hydrocarbon exploration companies that has allowed us to have authority and custodianship over uh, minerals as well. Um, having said that, I think the, the question about other indigenous communities across India when it comes to forest rights or having access to forests has led to, I think, increasing criminalization in recent years. And I think that's addressing your question first has to do with the amendments around constitutional and also environmental law, which allows extractive companies and uh, corporations to go inside indigenous land, forest and extract. Right. So in a, in a sense, they have impunity from the state. The, the, the second part, which actually also touches on security, it's in the region where I've worked and I come from as an anthropologist. The northeastern part of India 
in the subcontinent shares maximum international borders with Myanmar, with China, with Bangladesh, with Nepal, with Bhutan. Um, and there is a new law there which says that uh, 100 kilometers on both, I think on, on the side of the border, will have absolutely no laws, including environmental laws, applied for the reason of security. So the armed forces can do anything they wish to do. Um, and, you know, it's it's quite long. And I think when we're talking about perhaps indigenous people and language here, the other uh, aspect that I want to bring in from my current work has to do with ecology as well. So when we talk about languages and talk about indigenous people, ecology plays a very big role in the way we see the world and how we inhabit. That means um, increasingly, I think even animals and other beings or water bodies have been very deeply affected. Uh, the, the, the final point that I really want to stress is that how the loss of language, I feel as an anthropologist, is not only uh, centered on community and that we lose a language when we stop speaking. It's actually related and connected deeply to ecology and to the forest. For instance, the Naga people and many indigenous communities of the Himalayas have a foraging practice. The moment you lose the forest, you lose a plant. You, you are faced with extinction. The moment you lose the plant, you lose the name of the land of the plant, you are losing language at the same time. And with that comes a loss of practice. So in my own current work, actually, to do with language, practice, and indigenous people, I think the, the loss is kind of almost a pyramid. It's felt so deeply that, that um, I think when first generation indigenous people lose language, they don't feel so much. They think that they are being modern, right? So it's that, it's that conversation about modernization that comes in. Second generation, perhaps a little bit um, ambivalent, by, but by the third generation, research so, shows that when, when you lose language, uh, mental health, trauma, anger, and the sense of disposition is so deep, right? So you don't even you don't even know what kind of name you have to give to that alienation that you feel that out of touch so in in that sense i think as an indigenous anthropologist right now my current work on food in the himalayas actually has dealt into the world of language and i'm seeing that how even people who speak i speak my mother tongue lota and i'm very fortunate that i'm able to speak my language that when i speak to elders lota elders as fluent as we are, we are losing the forest and the ecology. So actually we're losing names there. We're losing language there. So that's something that's really shocking me as well in my own study. Very interesting and disturbing um, as well. Um, Jackie, I might uh, go back to you. Um, I'm wondering, uh, given Gerald's framing around this um, uh, decade of Indigenous uh, language, uh, that the UN has proposed. Um, do you think it's going to make a difference in your community uh, here in Australia? I mean, what what can be done? It, 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 you know, is it is it purely symbolic, or is there things that we can do on the back of this decade long focus on uh, Indigenous languages to uh, improve the the chances of reviving or or avoiding the extinction of some of these languages? Well, I think the recommendations in this report are really really doable. Um, it's a very practical report. And I think this, um, look, uh, first of all, 
support activists instead of treating us like terrorists. Um, you know, that's something that strikes me as well, just, just listening about um, the struggle of the Naga as well. Um, you know, we are, so in my country, one of our biggest threats is extractive industry. And some of it wouldn't even see itself as extractive industry. Um, the Snowy Hydro scheme has actually blown to hell um, our core valley, um, Lobs Hole. It just really doesn't exist anymore. And their report, their archaeological report done by a non-Indigenous archaeologist, um, which is not fully written up yet, in fact, barely written up, said 20,000 years of continuous occupation in that valley. That's continuous, not discontinued at some point. We still identify with Lobs Hole. It's core to my mother's heart when she saw the images of what's been done to it, and that happened in 2021 while everyone was locked down. The Australian government destroyed my country. Um, exactly what you're saying about destroy the environment, you destroy, you know, we've how, how destroyed can we be? Our language isn't spoken actively anymore, but we will speak it again. And I call on the Australian government to um, put more funds into supporting language renewal in this country. Um, and supporting schools and communities to work together to have our kids growing up speaking our languages, including non-Indigenous Australians. Every Australian should know an Australian language. I, I pause there. I don't, shouldn't even have to say that. It's Australia, and most Australians don't know an Australian language. Imagine saying that in England. Most English don't know how to speak English. Or in France, most French can't speak French. That's just ridiculous. It shouldn't be like that. It's the same, you know, again, uh, my experience in northwest Pakistan, uh, you know, in Australia, we're treated like terrorists if we, or, or disestablishment if we, um, speak back against extractive industry in our country. I don't mind people having a good time up in my country, bushwalking and skiing. I love to do these things myself. But, you know, it should be limited. And the presence of us as Narugu people should be celebrated. It should be something everybody loves and cares about, not wants to see gone from the mountains. Why would you want us gone from the mountains? Why would you want our languages not heard up in the mountains? Our name for Kuzushka, Kunamanamaji, how about we celebrate that? It means the snowy boobies, <laughs> the snowy breasts, the mountains look like, you know, that's poetic. This is a feeling for country. It's, a, it's our mother. It's our mother country. You know, people should all know this, um, but you won't because, you know, as with the Naga, um, our environment's being destroyed in our language has gone with it, but we will bring it back. We're singing a snow song every year. The last two years we sang it, we've had more snow than Australia has seen in over 100 years. So that's what the use of language is, you know. It actually has agency. Whether you believe that's actually what happened or not doesn't matter. It did happen. We sing the snow song and it snows. 
And isn't that a good thing, you know? And shouldn't all Australians know about this? And all over Australia, this is what Australian languages do. Australian languages speak to country. We as Aboriginal people speak to country. So I think, yes, if the recommendations in this report were paid attention to, support us as activists, support our allies like Gerald, um, you know, this is this is what this country can do and countries all over the world can do. Hold events like this, hear our voices. You know, this report says it hasn't... Um, it hasn't endangered Indigenous people by bringing their names directly into it, but our voices are here. You know, this is what the world needs more of. In northwest Pakistan, these Indigenous tribal groups that I um, am friends with and I'm part of, that I work with as an anthropologist and a linguist, are all criminalised. They're treated like terrorists. If any, I can guarantee anybody in Australia thinks of the borderland with Afghanistan, northwest Pakistan, you think of some kind of crazy terrorist type, you know, a Talibani type or a jihadi type. You know, this is ridiculous. They're not. These are people who hold the knowledge of country in their language. Um, I've been privileged in the last few weeks to be on country with them, to know the names of plants, to eat the food that's grown there, to be part of country. This is the future for the world. This is not just a future for us as Indigenous people. You know, hear our languages, hear our knowledge, and that's what this decade can highlight. It just might actually save this planet overall, you know. Very good important point. The uh, link between that and ecology that Dolly was talking on, talking about it before. Um, Gerald, I might come back to the report and the recommendations that you um, make uh, in it. Um, I'm pleased to see that Jackie thought they were achievable and um, practical and uh, doable. Uh, I wonder if you could just um, take us through some of your recommendations and I guess also leave us some practical tips of what people listening online or here in the room can do. I mean, I, I, you're very good at that, like, uh, you know, distilling it down to some little ways that we can kind of change our lives on a, on a daily basis. Yeah, thanks, James. Um, I guess I would start off just by emphasizing what Jackie was saying about the, the need for people here in Australia, the government, but also the citizens to get behind supporting Indigenous languages, the best thing that we can really do on an international level is, is lead by example. Um, we, we do have some support for Indigenous languages in Australia. We have policies, we have funding, but it could be so much better um, and there needs to be so much more work done. One of the things which I've been tracking in my research, and Jackie and I have written about this um, as well, is the way that the Australian public um, pushes back against Indigenous languages whenever they're used in public. So uh, during a welcome to country at a sporting event, uh, singing the anthem, things like this. There is horrific racism in the Australian public, horrific, strong, violent pushback against the reclamation of Indigenous languages. So the first thing that everyone can do is not be racist. Don't do that right? Um, call it out when you see it, right? Um, push back against the backlash. That's really, that's really important because those, those, those people, they, 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 they shouldn't have a place in public discourse in Australia. I think it's really important to acknowledge that. Um, the second thing that I want to point out, I want to bring in one of the recommendations that my one of my co-authors made. So this, I, I wrote this report with Madoka Hamini, who is um, a, a, a 
uh, associate professor in Japan. She's an indigenous Okinawan, and Tutin Hernandez at the University of Philippines. Um, and Madoka, who did her PhD in um, Finland in indigenous studies, was involved with lots of collaborations with Sami people. Uh, as an indigenous Okinawan uh, while she was um, there in, in Finland. And uh, she thought it was really important to put in this um, policy brief a recommendation about collaboration and solidarity between indigenous people in different places, right? Because indigenous people understand each other's struggles better than non-indigenous people often are willing to. And, and so I want to sort of Lift, lift up her recommendation. I think some of the work that Tuting does in the Philippines is a great example of this. He works with a, a group called the Kartik Collective, which is a group of uh, people in the Philippines who are all working to support and raise awareness of the Indigenous languages in the Philippines. Um, and, and they're all sort of working in solidarity with one another. Uh, and that's really important, I think. And that's the kind of thing that the decade of indigenous languages is designed to inspire but the question is how do we how do we create an environment where people can do that safely so one of the recommendations that i make in the report is about the united nations special um, report rapporteur on human rights defenders so they have someone in the united nations a special office whose job it is to produce information and disseminate information and make recommendations about how to better support human rights defenders. It's an extremely important office, I think. That office currently does nothing to specifically identify um, challenges that Indigenous language rights activists face. So, like, at the top level, that would be a wonderful thing for the United Nations to do, to facilitate uh, this program functioning in the way that it's supposed to when in where Indigenous people around the world can stand up and can advocate for, engage in activism for their human rights and their linguistic rights more specifically. But um, I guess also at the Australian level, another important um, recommendation there is about, uh, you know, in the, like DFAT, for example, supporting, funding, promoting, advocating for that collaboration between Indigenous people in Australia and other countries. Um, Australia is a democracy. We have a role to play. We have a say in what our government does. Uh, we should be advocating for DFAT to engage in projects and programs that will support uh, Indigenous language rights activists in our in our region i think that that's that's something else that everyone who's uh listening can do great set of recommendations and uh you know you certainly inspired me the the way in which you have um co-authored and mentored with so many indigenous scholars asian scholars um you know it's a real practical thing that i think um, that you do that um, others uh, other scholars can also um uh, also do um, Dolly, I wonder um, if you could tell us a little bit about um, language endangerment and revitalization of, uh, amongst the Naga languages. Uh, I assume that they were talking about numerous languages. Uh, you can tell us about that. And to what extent 
um, you see this uh, decade, uh, UN decade of uh, indigenous languages making a difference uh, in India and to the Naga people. Thank you so much for the question. And I think, um, you know, when I talk about the Naga languages, I would like to also signal to the other Himalayan indigenous languages. Um, in the in the Himalayan region, uh, since the 80s and the 90s, I grew up hearing that the Lepcha language, both the language and the people were a vanishing tribe, vanishing race, and a vanishing language. And a very good friend of mine who's, who's an indigenous Lepcha ge geographer says that languages uh, and, and communities are not endangered or, you know, they don't vanish just like that. There's a huge history of disposition and violence, you know, in the backdrop of which such processes take place. Um, I think for me, looking at the indigenous decade of uh, the language is, in a sense, I think a learning process for me as an anthropologist, Naga anthropologist, I never thought that, you know, I would start thinking about language. But in the last two decades, as I have written and I have thought about it, I've realized that I think in my language, and so even this English that I'm speaking, right, it's, it's kind of a translation that's going on in my soul and in my head. And I'm very fortunate that in all the works I have done, the numerous books I've written, it's because I know my language that I have been able to conceptualize. And I think I think I would like to believe that that's how even my contribution in the academy has been richer, right? So it is a very, I think, important example. Um, just a couple of issues that we're looking at, uh, Naga language and then German. One of the things that I find is this deep trauma and, and sorrow that is there when communities lose language. In my own tribe, I come from the Lota Naga tribe young couples who speak the same languages, the children refuse to speak mother tongue because there's a shaming that's, that goes on, that the language is uh, inferior. They speak English or they speak Hindi, right? And it's known as languages which can take you places. Uh, I have very young couples from the Lota community who come and say, help us, right? We speak fluent languages and our children are not speaking. They are as young as six, seven, eight, nine, and they refuse to utter a single word. I'm thinking as a teacher that in this decade of indigenous languages, we really have to come with creative ways and think about pedagogy. Forget university and college. We need to really go to primary schools. We need to be going to communities, to families who are actually feeling that trauma and the disposition right there every day when a six-year-old refuses to speak mother tongue at home. Um, I think this is where I would really like to, I think I have some friends even from the Northeastern part zooming in, they said they'll all register. So I would really like to sh give a shout out to the Northeastern Institute for Language and Culture, which started this year and I'm very active there. It's It was started by Father Vijay, who is a linguist trained at Oxford and he has, he has devoted many decades of his life looking at indigenous languages in the northeastern part of India. And we have often talked about healing and trauma, because if we say that love is a language, so is, I think, healing and trauma a process of understanding um, which, which can, I think, which language can help us to bridge. Um, in the decade of indigenous languages, I really want, actually in my, in my Naga community, to feel that adult learning shouldn't be shamed. And we have to, as indigenous people, also question this, this rigidness about purity. If, if languages change, they evolve with generations. When indigenous elders shame and humiliate younger ones for, for 
not speaking the correct way, I think it's wrong, I would say. You know, let languages grow, let new vocabularies come in. And so we have to think in the indigenous decade of language for a new, I think, courageous pedagogy among indigenous communities. We really need a lot of soul searching to do ourselves. The second part is that I speak as an international indigenous staff in, here in Australia. I feel that for universities, we really need to center uh, language and indigenous, indigenous community history in international engagement. Uh, when I think recently I was in India when Penny Wong spoke Bahasa and and different languages very fluently across the Asia Pacific. She was in the international news all over. Imagine Australia and Australians speaking indigenous languages and having that reverse effect for us as international indigenous staff. I have never seen any university here in Australia inviting international students, scholars to come and learn any indigenous language. This country is known for French, for Italian, for German, for every other European languages besides any indigenous languages. Trust me, there, are, there is a huge, huge interest in this country to come and learn about indigenous languages, exchanges, students, and I think this is where we can thrive. And this is something that I've really seen absent across pedagogy in universities and colleges in Australia as an indigenous international staff. Um, the, the third part that I really want to focus on, once again, is really looking at language to overcome trauma and, and go through a process of healing. And that's what language should enable us to do. In my role as a teacher, both as indigenous uh, anthropologists from India and Australia, I, I communicate with a lot of young indigenous uh, students across continents. One thing that I find very similar in their trauma is anger. Right? And anger in not being able to speak a language, they so desire to speak and they so desire to communicate in, but kind of just is like at loss to even express it. And I feel that as teachers, we can actually help and we can actually listen to a process of healing, which I think is something that we all need for a shared future. Great, great points. Um, some, again, some really practical advice. Um, I might um, turn to questions to bring the audience uh, in. Um, a reminder for those online to use the Q&A function to uh, lodge your questions. Uh, but I might start here in the room. If um, anyone have a question that they would like to ask, I might roam around just so, uh, oh, you guys, you, you oh, okay, <laughs> Jackie's done that. Thank you. So yeah, if you just uh, introduce yourself as well and yeah, ask your question. Um, hello, I'm Ebony. I'm studying to be a secondary English and history teacher. And so I'm wondering in the ideal world with government funding and with parent support, community support, what would Indigenous language education in Australia look like in the ideal setting? So who wants to start? Why don't you start? <laughs> I think more of what's actually going on already. There are schools that are um, running very good language programs um, where Australian languages, Aboriginal languages and Torres Strait Islander languages are taught as additional languages. Um, I would also like to see, so I'd like to see that increase. I'd like to see every school in Australia offer an Australian language um, at every level. I would also like to see the schools that have for years um, 
offered um, bilingual or actually in Australia in the um, schools that are teaching in Aboriginal languages, they're usually much more than um, bilingual. They're multi-multi-multilingual schools. So, for example, at Yerkala, um, that school teaches in about 12 languages uh, very successfully and the kids just all speak 12 languages or more and acquire English as just another one and speak it beautifully, read and write English. And we all know the great band Yutu Yindi, um, the Unipingu family have, you know, supported kids in that community to produce songs and performative pieces in English as well as all their own languages. Uh, you know, for most of the world, being multilingual is normal. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, back to my point about nation states and Australia particularly, uh, we normalise the idea of being monolingual and that somehow speaking English, oh dear, if you lose the other languages, too bad, so sad. At least you can communicate with everybody else in the world. Well, that's not true because even the Englishes around the world are different. And if you're not attuned to how different how different languages are in whatever context they're in. So as an English teacher, you will know this, that um, knowing standard Australian English may very well not help you if you're trying to communicate with kids at Moree who speak Aboriginal English of that Moree area, you know. So I, I just think, you know, the world needs to go back. This decade, if nothing else, should tell the world that um, it's actually really good to speak a lot of languages. And the Indigenous languages, as we've been saying, hold a whole lot of knowledge that we really need as a world to keep hold of because we need to know what all these plants and other things do and how you can, you know, eat them, use them, um, because into the future a lot of our major crops are going to fail, a lot of our broadacre farming, our farming of animals the way we've done, all of that's going to fail and all that knowledge of how to live better and live well and live locally resides very comfortably in Indigenous languages. So it makes sense to bring more and more into our curriculum um, a knowledge of Indigenous languages. And for Australia, it should be for the whole region. Um, I'd like to see more languages of the whole of Asia, right up into Central Asia and Southeast Asia, brought into our curriculum. So more diversity. <laughs> yeah. Does anyone else want to add to that? Just very quickly in response to that, like I think in a lot of the conversations that I've had with people in Australia about Indigenous language education, one of the things that um, non-Indigenous people often want to do is rush in and learn the language. That's how they're going to solve the problem. That's not always the best answer. Um, different communities have different approaches to this and just respecting the approach that the whichever community it is is taking to their language is is has to be the foundation of any anything that we do as non-indigenous people right so in a lot of cases that uh, uh, aboriginal people don't want non-indigenous people learning that language that's we have to respect that but one thing that we can do is really work to normalize being multilingual right i really think that um Aboriginal languages will return to Australia most fully when everyone in Australia is multilingual, right? Um, that's not like 
you can learn a language yourself to become more multilingual. That's really good. That's an important thing to do. That's a rewarding thing to do. But it's also an individual solution to a structural problem, right? We need language to become a political issue. It has to become an electoral issue. It has to become a party political issue. It has to be a like a Democrat. It has to be part of the democratic political agenda in this country. And that's going to take mobilization, right? So there's like long, long series of steps between where we are now in a multilingual country where indigenous languages are reclaimed and flourishing again. But that's gotta that's gotta happen democratically. You know, not only about I think Australian indigenous languages, but languages as such, I think we get we get a familiarity and we fall in love with with it once we know the community closely, we know the history. And I think what my colleagues here are saying is that, you know, learning a language, we have to especially Indigenous languages, is that we have to see whether it's for extractive reasons or is it as a form of solidarity. And I think there's a huge difference there. And the kind of, the, the kind of I think, uh, suspicion, right, the kind of uh, bridge of trust that's been there, I think it has, it, has, it has been there historically. Even, for instance, this entire, you know, I was just reading up on, the, on, on medicine and magic mushrooms and this entire psychedelic history that was there really traces back to Indigenous history and Indigenous knowledge where a lot of American scientists went across the Amazon, Latin America, learned languages, extracted all the knowledge, brought it, and of course, you know, all the papers and now the scientific discoveries are theirs. So in terms of that, because I, I go back to ecology as well, the, the world and, and, and the layers of knowledge is, is maddening. I don't think that even in my language, in my mother tongue, I can decipher in one lifetime that and, and the other thing we need to remember about indigenous communities and languages is that it's a living oral culture, right? So how do we kind of, how do we, um, you know, look at the processes of perhaps translation, interpretation? In my own work as an anthropologist, I'm finding that a single plant might have more than two names, more than two, three meanings. And we can't say, right, like, like in the English language world, that, you know, only one, only one meaning is correct and the others are not correct because we we have this process of eliminate elimination of meanings in in my language some plants might have two three meanings and and it depends on the elevation it depends on the season it depends on the mood of the elders and how the plant is reacting to them so i think this is it takes time and perhaps to fall in love with language indigenous language and community is to take time and know history. And that's why, once again, I'm saying that, you know, not university or college, we really need to go to primary primary school level to really have the understanding of what it means to respect and what it means to, to grow together. Yeah, thank you. Um, and we've got some questions coming in online, um, including one from Jolo Bianco, who's one of Australia's leading experts on, uh, on language learning. Um, it's very long and I can't read it off my screen. Um, are we able to give him speaking rights or is that, am I pushing the envelope on what we can actually do? Sorry, Diane, I'm making you run. Say um, I'm glad Joe's there because everything we're saying is something that he's been advocating for for many decades now. And in fact, we used to have under his direction in Australia, a whole um, area within government that was supposed to be pushing the idea of Australia becoming 
um, a multilingual country. Well, uh, that is to say that policy-wise and in terms of government actions, a multilingual country, because it always has been. I was once told that Australia actually has a representative from every single language in the world in this country. So every language of the world has somebody in this country who speaks that. So it is a highly multilingual place. It's just that we don't have this policy of really supporting it, just having translators for various services and things and, you know, lip service to our Australian languages in schools is not, as I said before, really doing it. We actually have to be like the rest of the world is actually multilingual, but the rest of the world is also trying to follow this single language state model, which is unsustainable. So, Joe, I, I don't know if you can hear us, but I think you've been given speaking rights. And if you yeah, don't, um, great if you could ask us, it was a rather long statement that you wanted the panel to respond to. Um, can you hear me? We can. Oh, thank you. Um, I want to apologize. First, I only came on close to six because I thought it was a six o'clock start. So I missed quite a bit. And I'm very sorry about that because uh, my favorite people in the world are on the panel. So, um, and I, I missed their input, but I've got the document now and I'll read it with a lot of interest. But I did hear some points and I might be not getting this right, but I just wanted to make a clarification about what the state of language policy in Australia is, because I think there's a tendency to think that it is basically a continuation of a national state rhetoric. When I think really Australian language policy for the last 40 years has been dictated by one overriding principle, and that's been a neoliberal commercial principle. And it hasn't favoured European languages at all. It's favoured a very small number of commercially um, prestige Asian languages, and those even over the speakers of those languages within Australia. So a lot of what um, uh, Jackie has been saying is really deeply, deeply true in multiple ways. And I think it's interesting if you look at the way languages are examined at the final years of schooling, speakers of these languages are actively disadvantaged in the design of the exams because the presumed ideal learner is a foreigner. So the conception of the purpose of language learning is about outsideness, moving away from Australia. So I think the problem, the diagnosis of the problem needs to include this dimension before we can really tackle it. But I feel a lot of the same um, deep concern that uh, I've heard in the short time I've been listening uh, about the really deep sense of um, um, instrumentalism that underlies how our concept of language works. And it's not, not a good instrumentalism, not all instrumentalism is bad, but it's a very commercial, narrow and short-termist instrumentalism. So I wanted to ask the, the panel really to comment on this. Do you agree with me that what I'm saying is, I mean, that we do have a nation state rhetoric, which is monolingual, but we also have a bilingual or foreign language study preference within that. And it's not for community languages. You can look, you can look at it in relation to Chinese. You know, the, the way in which the promotion of Chinese in Australia happens is already has several layers of selectivity about it. Um, you know, 
just in the last five years, for example, there's been lots of focus on how few Australians actually speak Chinese. An incredible thing to say. People calculated that only 113 people in Australia was fluent speakers of Chinese. And so this was constantly recycled in government rhetoric, when of course there are this well over a million who do. It's a, it's a sense of who counts as an Australian that's deeply beneath this. So it's, it's not understandable as Eurocentrism. It's not that at all. And I think if we misdiagnose it that way, we won't really tackle what's going on. It's, it hasn't been Eurocentric for 40 years. What's really going on is commercial instrumentalism. And, it, and it's not completely monolingual. It involves dominance of English plus strategic foreign language study. So yeah, I just wanted to throw that into the mix and get comments from people. So we're almost out of time. And oh, good, sorry. No, no, so that was a fantastic um, uh, question, Joe, and it was great to have you involved in the panel. Um, and apologies that I can't get to some of the other online questions, but I might give each of the panellists a, a chance to make a kind of final comment um, in relation to Joe's points or other points they would like to make. So, um, Jackie, you start. And yeah, look, just quickly, um, the, the language that Pakistan's looking at introducing now is Chinese, perhaps even over English or Urdu, um, and this is absolutely for commercial reasons, um, their strategic partnership with China. And I think that's uh, what you've just said, Joe, is so true. This is why Australian languages are so devalued, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander languages. They're just not seen as useful. How ridiculous. It's Australia. I don't have to make a case for Australian languages being useful in Australia or for multilingualism. 407 Australian languages at least. This is a highly densely multilingual country. That's the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander languages without all the others. So let's not lose that. That's what we really need to be focusing on is helping people to be able to speak a lot more languages and speak them in a way that's relevant, um, not just commercial. I think in the decade of the Indigenous uh, language, UN Indigenous languages, it's quite ironical that, you know, some of the recognised uh, languages in the in, uh, at the United Nations are, are European languages and doesn't include any of the Indigenous languages or even languages from Asia. I don't know if they've accepted German as one of the official languages at the United Nations after the Second World War. Um, my point, I think, uh, is that I'll, I think I'll stick to the Eurocentrism and around languages. Um, and, and as a teacher here in Australia, international stuff, one of the uh, hardest hit language programs in Australia during the pandemic was actually Asian languages uh, and small languages. Um, at the University of Melbourne, um, Hindi is not taught. The world's most populous, uh, I think, uh, countries, uh, almost you know, dominant language is not taught. Um, so, so in a sense, I think if we look at Asia as well, I completely agree that you know we look at language, we look at market, market value. Uh, but I would still say that Australia and Australia's attraction to Europe and European languages really has, maybe you know, has 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 to be seen in the backdrop of the colonial legacy. 
and 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 definitely the connections that are there. Um, I I do a lot of mentoring and advising, you know, at at the university level. And students' fascination with European languages remains, and that is true. If you're a white Australian growing up in Australia, your first attraction, perhaps in my in my own uh, experience as a teacher, is really you know in a way European languages. When I was studying in Hong Kong, it was the same. A lot of Hong Kong kids from elite families would be very attracted to European languages, and they would pick it up. So perhaps it's also this, the, the the social capital, and and maybe you know looking at mobility and what matters and what doesn't matter. Today in India, if you're from an elite family, you want you want to work at the United Nations, you will go for French. You won't go for any other languages. So I think that attraction still remains, and that's a reality. Yeah, thanks, Joe. I, I will try to keep my reply as as brief as possible to a lot of big issues that you raised, uh, but just zone, focusing in on that issue of neoliberalism, like neoliberalism as language policy ha- has been the kind of dominant strain in Australian uh, and global language politics for, what, 30, 30 plus years. I think that that diagnosis is correct. I think we're like historically in an interesting moment where neoliberalism is in itself maybe globally in a, in a bit of a crisis right we saw this during the pandemic we saw the you know the the state state control of core markets etc reasserting itself neoliberalism was seen to be like you can't solve pandemic with the market that we've seen that now um and so like a lot of people a lot of analysts now are saying that we're we're at this kind of post-neoliberal turn perhaps and the danger is what comes next right if we're not if the market isn't ruling languages anymore if the market's not governing languages if it's going to be a newly assertive nation state which seems to be what we're seeing in china in india in russia everywhere more aggressive assimilatory language policies um, if it's if it's going to be a new muscular state, that's going to be bad for languages everywhere. Um, if the decade can be used for a groundswell of transnational, uh, trans-indigenous solidarities, people's movements for languages, then uh, that's a positive turn. That's something that could sort of snatch language from the clutches of neoliberalism, perhaps. So, so that's something that hopefully we'll see. So I'm, I'm just going to ask one last question. I'm, I'm, I'm told that um, we can go a little bit over. Uh, and there's a great question from Kishore um, online. Um, his question is, how do we perceive Indigenous people who are suffering from deep-rooted inferiority complex as well as trauma to study their own language rather than learning the dominant language? So are there strategies, you know, uh, take it back to, you know, individual Aboriginal people uh, as well as Indigenous people. Um, how, do we, how do we get that language uptake going? Uh, well, inferiority complex, sorry, don't have one of them, but um, and I really hope other Aboriginal people don't either. I think that there is actually what um, Gerald was saying before, there's some deep-rooted racism in this country as there is all over the world. Um, directed towards Indigenous people, um, including from other Indigenous people. I have to say, we're not ourselves immune to it. Um, Our own communities turn on each other. And I think that's really um, a very bad kind of product of the colonial experience. I think that um, 
what happens is that there's a lot of uncertainty out there in Indigenous communities about who and what we are, and we fuel that ourselves quite often, which is really bad. And then the uh, the wider population fuels it as well. I see this all over the world, you know, back to my point about everybody in North Pakistan is a terrorist. Well, in Pakistan, you often hear people in southern Pakistan saying, don't go north, it's really dangerous, it's full of terrorists. It's not any more than the southeast. You know, it's just, you know, so there are these sort of self-perpetuating stories about Indigenous people. We are seen to be anti-establishment. We're not. We actually, like, in Australia, you can't be Aboriginal and be anti-establishment. This is actually our country. Um, the establishment is us. All the people who've invaded are actually anti-establishment. We had an establishment. It's still there. So I think that there's some confusion around, um, uh, I guess, how to move forward and how to support Indigenous communities worldwide to, to be ourselves. And I think what Gerald just said about this idea of in this decade, maybe we can have this sort of um, transnational um, Indigenous kind of upswell, it, it is definitely happening. There's a sort of, I often think of this sort of swirling around the world of Indigenous thinking. Um, and I know that wherever I go, people um, who are Indigenous seem to be thinking very similar things and are very relieved to find that other Indigenous people are thinking the same things. And, and our allies are, you know, the, you're, you're our allies in this room, I think, and also online. Um, so I think that that's, you know, this is kind of the way forward. I don't think it's about, as I said, um, a kind of feeling of inferiority. It's more a matter of we're being kept down and it's over. We're not down anymore. Sorry, world. We're here. We're out loud and proud. We're Indigenous and we like being Indigenous. And you're all going to love us being Indigenous because it's good for you. <laughs> Um, thank you so much. So I'll, I'll be very quick about this. Uh, where, um, okay, for, for, for two seconds, be with me. I'm, I'm just going to like quickly tell you all to shut up, right? Shut up. What, what do you feel? Um, kind of an insult, right? It's like, I, I was quiet. Like, why is she telling me to shut up? Imagine historical trauma and colonization. Not even using language, using machetes, cannonballs, guns, to massacre and to gen to 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 uh, to kind of inflict genocide. We're talking about hundreds of years. After that, looking at language policies, when I was teaching in at Stockholm University, a student came in one day to my office, shut the door, and said, "Listen, I have to tell you a secret." And told me that he had Sami blood and that through the 50s and the 60s, the Swedish state had actually banned indigenous languages in Scandinavia. Uh, can you imagine your language being banned? If you're talking about criminalization, the language that you speak, your soul language being banned. Um, so when we talk, and thanks for asking that question, inferiority complex, right? Look at these two words. It sounds like multivitamin complex that we go to, uh, you know, to Costco, to a pharmacy to buy. We're really looking at inferiority, the idea and the experience of not only being conditioned with trauma, but imagine you're inheriting that from your great-grandfather, your grandfather, your mother, and now you have the trauma. What do you do with that? It doesn't only, I think, start with you shut up, but imagine your entire community is being massacred. I think this is really, really a reality. And for me as an Indigenous teacher, I've seen this over and over and over again when 
indigenous students get up and they want to say something and they can't say it, right? It's as though words and language, not because they can't speak it, but it's as though they're choking on language. I think that is something we really, really need to recognize and it's a reality. So this idea of inferiority complex, I think perhaps one of the last things maybe we can hold on this evening is this idea of complex. I would like to give the metaphor that, Kishore, take the example of a fish bone or a chicken bone, a, 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 a thorn being stuck on your throat. And remember that that, that bone that's stuck and you cannot speak is perhaps that kind of colonial violence and disposition and trauma you feel that you need to spit it out. All right. You have to find the process of healing, find community that's nurturing. And trust me, there is a moment of transformation that's going to happen. And, and I think that's where you can see the light and where you can overcome trauma healing and then be that active light, that active thinker, community worker, that writer, research, that researcher that you want to be. Whatever you want to say today or in the future is there's nothing wrong with it. Say it out loud. If you, if we need counseling as indigenous scholars, community members, we should seek that out because we can't let that kind of language be like a fishbone stuck in our throat where we are not able to express and not able to get out of the trauma. Yeah, I think um, just to again to zoom in on those words inferiority complex, which I think we all found quite striking, right? Um, I think if there's an inferiority complex that we have to worry about, it's the inferiority complex of the racists, of the of, of the colonizers, of the bureaucrats, um, of the people who are implementing these assimilatory policies, of the government that are attacking their own citizens, of the people who are going out of their way on the internet to attack indigenous people for using their indigenous languages, right? Maybe if we did a little bit to understand the inferiority complex of those people, um, uh, and to uh, to understand why they feel so compelled to engage in these uh, public forms of domination and uh, violence, right? I think that that might be more helpful because I think if we didn't have people like that constantly bullying and harassing and uh, insulting and coercing uh, Indigenous people everywhere, if we didn't have people like that creating systems and structures and policies that coerce Indigenous people in into giving up their in their languages, right? Then Indigenous people want to speak their languages. They love their languages. They want to use them. They want to pass them on to future generations. Um, so it's it's not Indigenous people's inferiority complex that we have to deal with. It's the inferiority complex of the people who dominate and abuse Indigenous people. I think I think it's a great way to kind of wrap up the the night on a on a really positive note. And I want to thank our panelists, um, Gerald, Jackie, and uh, Dolly, who are three really inspirational uh, academics and activists uh, in this space, really leading the way and uh, giving us a lot of food for thought and uh, also some practical suggestions that we can put in place in our daily lives. And uh, I want to congratulate Gerald and his co-authors uh, once again on this uh, uh, really important policy brief. Uh, and if you haven't already uh, read it, if you're here in the room, you can pick up a copy. And uh, if you're online, you can go to the Latrobe Asia website where you can download it and read it. Uh, it's certainly worth uh, your time. So um, once again, 
thank our panelists and thank uh, our audience for joining us and uh, bid you a very good evening. <laughs>